Story Makers. Welcome. It is May 14, 2015. I'm Elizabeth Stark Powers, and I'm here with Jillian Lauren. Hi, Jillian. Hi, Elizabeth. And uh, you are... So, uh, you, yeah, so some people will be able to see this um, in the video and some people will just be hearing it in the audio, but uh, you wanted to explain where you are. I do want to explain where I am because I'm in, a, I'm in my parents' house and this is my brother's childhood room. I just, I, I didn't want people to think that I put bumper stickers on my closets. <laughs> At home, you know. uh, of course, your readers know know a fair amount about you. <laughs> but, um, not everything, but um, uh, that's. But this is good to not give the wrong impression. Um, let me just start with your with your bio, um, just to, by way of introduction. Um, so, so Jillian is a writer, storyteller, mom, rock wife, and Los Angelino now by way of Jersey. Um, She's also the New York Times bestselling uh, author of the memoir, Some Girls, My Life in a Harem, the novel Pretty, and then the now just out memoir, Everything You Ever Wanted. And she also writes essays and articles that have been in the New York Times, Paris Review, Vanity Fair, Los Angeles Magazine, Elle, Salon, and others, and also tells stories, including at the Moth. Um, and, um, and, is, and is actually, now you're actually, are you, are you back in Jersey now for this interview then? I am back in Jersey. I have a, a event tonight in Maplewood. There's a really wonderful bookstore in Maplewood called Words Bookstore, and uh, they donate some of their proceeds to autism research, and they have a wonderful special needs resource section, um, and I talk a lot about parenting a child with special needs in my book, so it's a, it's a wonderful venue. And, uh, and I'm being interviewed by Dr. Jane Aronson, who is an international, probably the top international adoption pediatrician special that's specialist right now in this country so I'm super excited about the event and I'm here in my parents house <laughs> you can't go home again <laughs> um so well, we're going to get into all of the the wonderful stuff about your memoir but um we usually start the podcast with just a review of what we're working on this week and I will say that Angie right now is with our younger son who is six so she's working on that <laughs> uh, and she may join us if she's able to um and I have been working this week on on, um, I'm working on a memoir that has to do with gay marriage, which is timely right now with everything happening with the Supreme Court. So I've been trying to call some shorter pieces from the longer piece to send to the you know sub agent who does those submissions. And um, of course, finding that more challenging than I thought because it's you know to pull those things out of the hole. But that's that's what I'm working on this week. I always have a real challenge with that. That's really hard. Yeah. Um, because you want to, you know, you have to create an arc that's satisfying out of something that's really part of a larger arc. So, yeah, yeah. Have you have you done that? Have you? I mean, have you had excerpts from the? I have. I have two excerpts from everything you ever wanted. One is in L, and one is in Harper's Bazaar. And and did you find they were were they mainly sort of um, one chunk, or did you pull different parts together? The one for L, I sculpted a little more. I pulled from places. It's predominantly those the same section as the book. Um, like you wouldn't really notice the changes unless you knew. Um, and the Harpers is straight out of the book. They just wanted it. They're like, we want this. 
just like this. Thank you very much. So that's great. I, I have a whole theory that that the New Yorker kind of launched this idea of these kind of slice of life, open ended stories, um, really by just excerpting novels and not acknowledging. <laughs> that's so true. Yeah. So what are you working on this week? Well, this week I'm on my book tour and, and it is the very first week of my book tour. So it is insane and it's just a lot of publicity and hustling and not as much creative time for me, which always is a real soul suck and is very hard. And it only happens once in a while. Um, you know, it happens once in a blue moon that I have to be in a full blown publicity cycle. I try to just surrender and give myself to it. But you know, I am trying to write like little essays and I always keep up with my blog. Um, so I'm in the middle of a blog post right now. So that's just some little anchor. Absolutely. It's not just emailing, emailing, emailing. Yeah. And is that at JillianLauren.com? Is that where your blog is? Yeah, JillianLauren.com. Okay, good. Um, so, yeah, that's amazing that you even managed to do that. And is your family traveling with you? I think I saw your yeah. husband. Yeah, my father has my son at the zoo right now and uh, bought him like a rocket launcher. Or some, And I'm just like, I'm working so hard. I'm like, fine, rocket launcher. Cool. That sounds great. <laughs> Awesome. Um, so that's great. Yeah. So that's what grandparents are for, right? To just do that. Yeah. To buy the rocket launchers you won't buy. Right. Exactly. So um, I'm hoping to talk a little bit about, about, you know, all of your books um, because you, you know, because you write fiction and nonfiction and, um, and also I think to have written two memoirs, um, well, you know, and, and be so young still is quite an accomplishment and two really, you know, powerful and important and, and moving memoirs, I think. Um, so, you know, and, and it also is such, you know, it's like a memoir, you have to choose a, a chunk of your life and kind of hone in on it, right? And so you have done that twice to kind of have created two different character arcs, two different sort of beginning, middle, and ends. I mean, has that shifted? Did it did it shift with the second one? Did was it? Did you have an easier time kind of finding your 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 story? How did how did that? How's that process for you? It was not easier the second time. I think that that finding the arc finding what the story was, was easier the first time. There had been uh, 18 years in between those events and when I wrote them. So that with that kind of hindsight, I was able to see, oh, like, here's the beginning, here's the middle, here's the end of this, this little story in my life, not my entire life. I mean, I could, I could write 20 memoirs right now. You know, I, I don't think it has to do with being being young or old or um, I think that it ha it just has to do with, you know, being specific, you know, and looking at, at, at the specificity. I mean, my first memoir covered only two years mm -hmm. and this one is uh, how many years did it cover? Probably more like seven, mm -hmm. but there's a lot of that there's a lot of leaps in there, you know, cause I start with meeting my husband and are, you know, trying to get pregnant, being unable to, um, all the stuff we went through, then adopting my son and then our first few years parenting him. So as I was writing it, it was sort of still going on and that was much, much harder 
to pull back enough to say, wait, what's the story here? And where does it end? Because my relationship with my son is ongoing. It doesn't end. And that's really the heart of the book. Um, so, you know, I, I, I found a point where I really felt like there had been such a shift for all of us. And then there was this really beautiful moment that I felt exemplified that shift. And I was like, nah, just leave it there. Yeah. And period, you know. <laughs> and now was that, did that moment actually have, like, were you at the moment that you end that kind of what I, you know, we call the new ordinary world or whatever. Um, did right. you have been writing the book already before that? Or did you actually start writing the book after that? <sighs> Remember? <laughs> Um, <laughs> that's an excellent question. I don't remember. Yeah. I don't remember if, if I think that I was probably writing the book. I, what I know is that I was writing my blog and a lot of, and I was constantly journaling during that time. And a lot of the voice of my blog and a lot of the content, not directly, it wasn't like there are actual blog posts in the book because there aren't, but it, it did serve as a document for me. And also a, a voice, you know, my voice and talking about parenting and talking about our family really evolved through that blog. Um, so I was definitely blogging during that time. Did you, do you actually go back? I mean, did you actually go back and reread the blog or like take notes or, or, or any, I mean, I find it really excruciating sometimes to reread my own work. <laughs> no, it's terrible. And I never go back and read it. But in this case I did. And the same thing with my journals. It's like I could just put my eye out with a stick having to read those things. Just, it's terrible. But I pretend that I'm researching someone else's life. Mm, that's a great and tip. And, I, and it helps me attain a sort of objectivity and not to look at it through that lens of self-hatred and judgment. I'm like, look, I'm not, I'm not here to judge this. I'm just here to research it. I'm getting all the, you know, when I put stuff on a big calendar, I print out giant calendars, I put them on the wall, and I write exactly when things happened. I find them in the blog, find them in the journal, write when they have it. And that helps me to come up with a mental map of that time. Because you don't remember. Like, you don't remember if that was in October that he bit that kid, or it was in, or it was 2000 and. 10 or if it was 2011, it's hard for me. So, um, I, so I use it in, as research, really. I never like copy a, and paste a paragraph or anything. Some girls, uh, you know, you, you talk in the book about journaling and, and that it's sort of even as sort of a, a kind of mental way of saving yourself. And, and I thought how great, you know, how fortunate, but then I wondered thinking about my young journals, you know, a lot of it for me was like emotional angst rather than kind of the salient detail that I would want to recreate the scene. Did you have both of those? It is mostly the emotional angst. I mean, really, the entries are mostly like, I plan to lose 10 pounds. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know if Johnny likes me. Uh, I mean, they're just the stupidest. Everyone. I mean, probably still. Probably still. I'm probably still writing. I wish I could lose 10 pounds. <laughs> My husband's not talking to me. Um, but... Uh, 
then I became, when I became conscious of it, and certainly now, sometimes I will, like, I'll know I want to remember these details. So sometimes I'll just write them as a list. Mm. Yeah. Like, I, I don't even you know, I'm just like, oh, you know, uh, here I am in my, in my brother's room, you know, these, this picture of him in a trench coat, the, you know, picture of my mom in this sparkly dress and pearls looking happy with a top hat full of champagne, it looks like, (laughs) you know, and, and like this stuff that strikes me, I'll write it as a list. I won't necessarily write it as some big scene because then that makes me want to not write it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's great. Um, and well, you mentioned voice. And I just, I think that's one of the great things about both of these memoirs is, is the voice. And in the first one, you know, being able to somehow really um, give us this teenager, but also, also have this narrator who can kind of guide us through what's going on. And it doesn't seem like it shifts kind of dramatically it's not like here I am the narrator here I am somehow you've kind of found a balance point that can go smoothly into both places can you can you talk about finding that voice thank you I think that that is the trickiest thing about about the narrative persona in in a coming-of-age memoir or in a childhood memoir is how to somehow hold um both the wise person sitting here writing it now or wise persona um, Mm -hmm. and really honor and be true to and portray the person who did not have this knowledge, you know, who was in, you know, in my case going and barreling into these completely stupid situations, um, you know, with all my heart and soul. And that is in many ways, what's attractive about the character and what was attractive about her to me, but it wasn't very smart. (laughs) So in order to, uh, you know, it's a very fluid thing for me. It's not something I necessarily approach very consciously. I think that it's kind of the magic, like finding that narrative persona is kind of the magic. Um, and, but I was conscious that both of those things had to be there, you know, and, and that both of those things had to be there very, vibrantly so um you know and I think that they 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 kind of there's a flow you know sometimes you know the 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 younger Jillian's more in the forefront and sometimes the wiser Jillian is more in the forefront so and with and with the and with the recent book with everything I ever wanted um there's such especially I mean both of them but the, the storyteller I mean that's what I felt I felt um, that the storyteller really hooked me. And I mean, I did read it in like 36 hours, you know, while lots of other life was going on and kids throwing up and whatever. And, um, and you know, so it, it, there was something so compelling about that. And, and you know, um, Philip Lopate has a book called To Show and to Tell that's about mm-hmm. nonfiction. And, and you really do that in a, in a way that's very beautiful. I, I feel like um, a lot of my work with students is backing them off from telling and, and having them, tr- you know, trust the scene and at the same time to do the kind of sweeping story that you're that you're doing um and to and to i think include all the kind of all the growth and the shifts and the learning and the thinking as well as the emotions i mean all of that somehow you you it seemed like you had to 
tell, but in this way that felt as, as vivid as a scene. So I don't know if you can talk right. about this. Well, I think that you often have to tell through the transitions too, especially when, with memoir, you're dealing with so much information, like so much happens in the course of a day and you're writing about the course of a year or two years or seven years or 10 years. And so it's such a process of editing. And sometimes I think that that editing turns into some telling and, uh, and I don't think that that's a bad thing at all. I really do think it's a, a matter of coming up with a balance between the two, because really, honestly, you don't want me to show you every single freaking thing. It would be so boring. Um, so, uh, you know, I think that my voice has always been my strength. What I had to learn was structure. I had to learn how to create a narrative and I had to learn how to tell a proper story, story with a beginning, middle and end. Um, and that was something I worked on very hard and that I think uh, that the work I did on that shows between my books, you know, um, like I think you can see the growth. Uh, or I, I hope so. Um, and the voice that takes you through the telling is sort of the same one. It's the one you've been developing throughout the whole book. So, you know, if it's, if it's likable and colorful and fun and you trust this narrator, then you can trust them to take you to t just tell you a little bit through a transition. Yeah. Yeah. And it felt like that. I felt like this really wonderful storyteller was telling me about her life and then also kind of being able to open up the sky and show me a scene, you know? And Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's great. I love that. That's great. Can you talk about you know, what, like some of the specific things you learned about structure and narrative that were, you know, particularly helpful? I don't know if there's particular influences or teachers or, yeah. or even just, do you use a particular structure? I do. I, I'm a big hero's journey person. I love Joseph Campbell. Um, and, and I love mythic story structure of all kinds. And, um, I really like that book. Um, the seven basic stories, I think mm -hmm. seven, seven, nine, seven things, seven basic stories. Um, and you know, I mean, I just can't read Joseph Campbell enough. And, uh, and I also look at like a call from Jungian, archetypes and I look at those sorts of journeys, you know, and, um, I, I mean, I will pretty much because I just think the hero's journey is kind of perfect. If you are not kind of, it is perfect. It's a perfect story structure. Does it mean it's the story structure for everything, but it is a perfect story structure. And for a memoir where you're like a, a memoir, that's a personal journey. It, it's pretty on the nosy. So I will use it like a skeleton and just hang my, hang my work on it. You know, like I, I first, I read a first draft that's like just garbage and 800 pages long and everything. And the worst, just the word, no structure, nothing. And then what I do is I'll, I'll like, I'll take hero's journey and put it all along the wall. And then I plug in the pieces of my story and then a narrative starts to take shape in front of me. Um, so I do it in like a very, um, kind of old fashioned way. I think, you know, I'm not very experimental. 
are you sometimes struggling like, oh, wait a minute, maybe that wasn't the mentor, maybe that, or, you know, maybe this wasn't that moment, maybe it happened later. I mean, do you, do you find yourself kind of moving them around? Yes, absolutely. And then sometimes I'm like, am I just making this be, this isn't really the, you know, jerk crossing the water or this isn't really the point of darkness and uh, uh i'm just deciding it is because i really don't want to think it through all that hard <laughs> well and, and because you have to impose it on life right it, I mean, it wasn't that it happened as a story it can only be told as a story right but i have to ask myself truly is this truly the moment that represents like the moment of greatest darkness is this is this the one like am i being honest enough am i uh am i being rigorous enough of myself is there perhaps something more that i don't want to write because or that i'm afraid of mm -hmm. you know, really is this the darkest moment i've got and uh, and so in, in that way, I think I look at the hero's journey and it becomes a, a tool for self-reflection um, and for examining the work, too, not just a skeleton to throw my work on. Do you have any rituals to create kind of your, to, I don't know, if you're writing space or like um, Robert Owen Butler has this book called From Where You Dream or From Where, from where You Dream, I guess, anywhere. He talks about kind of writing in the dream state and, you know, there, there's all like the editor versus the creator. I mean, do you have ways to, to tap into the part of you that's willing to go to the dark place or tell the story or? Right. So I think it depends on uh, what, part of the writing process I'm in because there's like definitely a time for the dream state um and the I write my whole first draft like that rough draft or horrible draft you know um and I and I I love that part I really like that part it's hard um you know it's hard to believe in it it's hard to plow through it it's hard but um that is the most, I don't know, the most revelatory part for me, because if I really allow myself into the dream state, I am, I'm usually learning what the story is rather than consciously telling the story. The story starts to tell itself to me. Um, how do I do that? I try to, um, well, first of all, I'll, I'll like set, I try to set the space apart. Um, and so I have a couple places I write. I write in my house. I write in my office, which is apart from my house. And sometimes I write in a cafe if I like want someone else's music and pretty people to look at, you know. <laughs> um, and uh, what? But what I'll do if I'm in my office or at my home is I always light a candle. Um, and and that just to me is symbolically setting this space, setting this time apart from the world in which I just dropped off my kid and he was acting like a jerk and he forgot his airplane. So <laughs> I had to go back home, get his airplane, drive it. Like how then do you go and, and enter a dream state? You know, it's hard to come from the minutia, the like minutia of life, which also I love, but it, does like kind of strangle me artistically sometimes um and and put a bookend on that and then start your start your work yeah and 
uh, so I light a candle, um, and I always try to just be very conscious of my body. Mm. I really try to work through my body. Um, and sometimes that involves stretching and sometimes it just involves, you know, closing my eyes and making, making a mental map of what's going on with me. And I will sometimes try to enter a scene or enter a, a piece of whatever I'm writing through a part of my body. That's not just my brain. You know, like, where was my hand? What was my hand doing? Like, try to, like, enter the scene through my hand. And then somehow it it plays a trick on my mind. And then I become much more aware of all the sensual details because I'm focusing on something physical. Um, so that's how I do it. That's wonderful. Those are such great, great tips. Um, I have a question here for you, which circles back a little bit to what we were talking about before. But um, uh, Sabina wants to know, with both memoirs, how did you know where to begin and end? And we talked about the end of, of the, the most recent memoir, but also beginning, you know, especially with this one. I, mean, I guess maybe there's a story like, you know, you, you, you meet the prince. <laughs> no, no, that was the first memoir. No, but you know what I mean? <laughs> you meet, you know, your husband and that's, I don't know. Did you know that was always the beginning? How did you figure it no. out? I have never written a book that the beginning, I what I thought was the beginning, that thing where you're like, oh, here's the beginning, it's so brilliant, you know, uh, has never actually been the beginning. And as they mostly wound up in the garbaggio, um, I, I think that you just start where you are and then figure out, and then you're going to figure out what the beginning is later. That's... That's been my experience, you know, so just start with your brilliant beginning <laughs> that, you know, is just coming out of you. And then when you finish that draft, look at it, you say, oh, maybe that's not the beginning. Maybe that beginning makes this too chronological. Maybe I have to start right here in the middle, take that scene put it in the front, you know, take, take the scene of the crash and put it in the front, take the, you know, um, whatever it may be. Um, or maybe you go, I don't need any of these three months here, here, my story starts somewhere else. So, um, yeah. Do you I remember, never, what, do you remember like or what a, a, the beginning was of, of everything I ever wanted or, or either one? I could. What was it? Well, right now there's a prologue. That's the beginning of it. Um, and that was from the middle of the book. Um, oh, I know. Um, this is a spoiler, but not really. Um, I initially started the book. To, during the book, I have a friend who dies of a drug overdose. I initially started the book with her death. Um, because you know, it, it, it just felt like this, it's a, it's a powerful scene. It's still my favorite scene in the book. And, and I was like, get it started with a bang. Um, and then it just wasn't, it wasn't working. I really stood by it for a while and people were like, that's not working. That's not the beginning. It's not, you know, I have my, my board of directors, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and then I figure three people tell you something and you're like, mm, one person tells you something you can be like, ah, just a matter of taste. Three people tell you something, you should look at it. Yeah, three three of your trusted trusted yeah. allies. Yeah. Right. 
three three of my board of directors were like, that's not your beginning. So I had to really rethink it. Can you talk a little bit about your readers and when you go to readers and how often you'll go back to a trusted reader or how, how you spread that out? Never go back. Mm. I, because I, I just feel like it is such, especially with a full manuscript read, it's an enormous favor. And it's a favor I would really only ask of somebody who would ask it back. Mm-hmm. Of me. You know, the people who we read each other's manuscripts Almost all of them, the people who edited mine, I've edited theirs. So um, I have different people for different drafts. I have different friends and teachers, you know, mentors of mine who have different strengths. You know, like I have one mentor who will still look at my work when I'm in graduate school, um, who's a terrific line editor. He's like very detail oriented. And then I have another friend who's like a shaman. You know, he just, he looks at the work and he just, I don't know, like kills a goat and throws it up in the air. And when it comes back down, it's in the right order. (laughs) And, uh, and so he looks, he's the only person in the universe who looks at my rough drafts Mm. because he, he can just like kind of flip through them really, really fast. He'll look through 600 pages in a day. And then just be able to say, okay, I think that this character is great. This character is great. I think the 300 p- pages in the middle have to go. <laughs> and, and, you, and you kind of know enough to, to pretty much trust that at this point. I do. I totally trust him. He saved my novel. Wow. He did that with my novel. I almost killed myself, really. I, he was like, these 150 pages don't belong in this book. 150 pages, just goodbye. And uh, I thought it was done. I thought the book was done. I thought he was going to be like, so brilliant. I, I, you know, I've never had a student hand me such a brilliant piece of work. That's always what everybody wants to hear, right? <laughs> There's always that chance. It's never happened to me, not once. But, uh, you know, I, I would be suspect, actually, if it did. I don't think it would be very helpful if it did. I mean, right. who knows? Um, but, uh, yeah, so I've learned to trust that. So I, I show different drafts to different people. I don't, I don't give it, like, in pieces. Like, oh, here's a chapter, chapter five. I just wrote of a rough draft. Will you look at it? I don't do that at all. I don't show it to anyone until I have a full rough draft because that chapter could be be meaningless. That chapter could be gone. That chapter, you don't know what's going on with that chapter. And if you start getting feedback too soon, I think on stuff that is just like half baked, Mm -hmm. it can be discouraging. Yeah. Yeah. Especially when not looked at as a whole. Right. Um, We have a few questions coming in here. Um, So one is um, very interesting to hear about your ritual of beginning. What do you do if you get stuck and the ritual does not work or has it always worked? I I don't get stuck. Um, You don't get stuck because... (laughs) I don't get stuck because I keep writing. That doesn't mean uh, it stops writing sometimes, but eventually I trust that I'll write my way through it. 
You know, I, I think, I don't think, I think that the only way through it is through it. If I'm feeling stuck, I'm having resistance to, I don't want to write this scene. I don't want to write about my father. I don't want to write, you know, about my abortion. I don't want to, you know, and I may think that I want to do that, you know, or it may even be 30 pages in the future that that's coming. And I know it's coming in my subconscious. And so I start to get stuck. Mm. Mm. And I am just, you know, I'm kind of a bitch about this. I sort of feel like if you put one word down on your computer and then you follow it with another word and then you follow that with another word, eventually you'll have a sentence and then you'll have a paragraph. And if you're willing to not be so precious about that and just say, this is garbage. I'm going to write the worst garbage. I have, um, uh, have you read the book, the tools? No. By Barry Michaels and Phil Stutz. Um, it's so good. And it addresses, uh, writer's block using the shadow, like the Jungian shadow. It's very, very cool. Uh, and I really recommend any creative person read it. Um, but one of the techniques is that, you know, you actually get down in front of your computer and pray to write the most mediocre page ever written. Like you just pray to write the most mediocre piece of shit today ever written. And it, can, and it frees you, you know? So, and then I think, I think that you write through it eventually. Like you, you find your way to it. I don't think that there's, uh, that there's magic. You know, that you shake off your writer's block with magic of any kind. I think you write, you write through your writer's block. Yeah, that's great. Um, the other question we have here is, um, and by the way, people are also chiming in throughout the whole thing. I can relate. I love researching someone else's life. There's a lot of enthusiasm here. Um, yeah, thank you. <laughs> And then um, Maureen asks, how about semi-tragic heroes where the ending might be sort of sad, say, someone really down on their luck, for example, and the glimmer of hope or optimism or new ordinary world is more subtle. Do you have any thoughts on that? Mm-hmm. All right. Personally, just personally with my own personal taste, if you're going to bum me out, you had better be so good. <laughs> I I will read any manner of tragic stuff if it's really beautifully done. And I think that, you know, art is hopeful by its very nature because there was an act of creation involved. And that doesn't mean it has to have a happy ending or a hopeful ending. It doesn't even have to be subtly hopeful. It can be totally terrible. And it's still hopeful in just by existing. Um, so that's really, that's really fine with me. I don't think you have to deliver a happy ending. Um, I like a happy ending though. And, uh, and if you're going to be tragic you had better be great at it who who's great tell me some of the people you you love or um, like who's great and tragic i well, mean or even just what do you love Camus is great and tragic kafka is great and tragic uh yeah um russians the russians are great and tragic. Uh, most recently, um, Jill Alexander Esbaum wrote a book called Housefrau will 
bum you out. But it is like a life changer. It is so remarkable, like remarkable, um, you know, portrayal of the heart of, of a woman. And I think women in many ways. Um, and uh, let's see, who else? Uh, uh, Amy Hempel is will bum you out. <laughs> okay, now we can move it all. It doesn't have to bum you out. Who do you love? Oh, who do you love? Uh, uh, Joan Didion also will bum you out. Yeah, uh, but Joan Didion's like my hero. I mean, I always feel so cliched saying that. Joan Didion's everyone's hero, but for good reason. Um, I love Maxine Hong Kingston. I love... Uh, I love... Allen Ginsberg, I love Rilke, I love um, the Russians, you know, I love Dostoevsky. Um, I like, well, I like Nick Flynn in terms of memoirists. Um, and uh, yeah. Yeah, great. Um, and, and, you know, we, so we could just like bleh, go on and on. Right, I know. Well, that's right. That's what I always say. It's what got us here is this reading is what got us into this whole writing thing. The first. Um, and, you know, we, and we only have a few more minutes, but I, I did want to make sure. I mean, we talked a lot about memoir because, of course, that's what you're in the middle of. And I happen to also be in the middle of that. But um, any more fiction coming? And can you talk a little bit about the difference for you between fiction and nonfiction? They're very similar. For me, it's a very similar process. It's not all that different. I mean, it's still just the nuts and bolts of it. You still sit down at that damn computer every day and write for the same amount of time. It's like it's it feels very similar to me. There's still the same kind of uh, thought process in terms of narrative you know, looking for the beginning, middle. I mean, I realize I keep saying that, but I feel like you can't say it enough. And yeah. I always forget it right I'm still always like oh wait a second I need a beginning a middle and an end sorry <laughs> I need steaks oh I forgot right. <laughs> <laughs> and uh you know so so all of that stuff is the same I think that the reason that so much memoir is bad is because people don't apply that same rigor Mm -hmm. that they would to fiction, to nonfiction. It's not a story just because it happened to you. A story has to be created. Mm -hmm. It has to be sculpted. Um, And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it might be a bunch of interesting events that happened to you, but it's not a story yet. Um, So, uh, you know, for me, they're very similar. And yes, there is fiction, in me and still coming. I don't know. Right now, it's sort of. Uh, I think that's mine. Oh, uh, you're turning mine. My mother's phone. <laughs> oh my god! I'm in my parents' house. <laughs> that's great. Now you really set up. And I don't know if you intended to do this, but the, the second memoir really. I mean, it, the first memoir kind of sort of sets up the second memoir. I mean, it really, it kind yeah. of casts, I mean, maybe you were looking for the happy ending for the first memoir, but it kind of casts off to the second memoir. Did you know that that was what was coming next? No, no, not at all. And when I finished the first memoir, I had no idea I would be writing a memoir about Taraku or a memoir about parenting or, um, I had no idea. Wow. <laughs> right, but if you read yourself analytically, you're young, 
he was still so young when I finished that book. He was, we had just got, he was 18 months old when I was on a book tour with him. Crazy. <laughs> yeah, it was the craziest thing. I was like talking on the phone, baby on my hip, like handing him off to people at readings. It was crazy. Um, it was great. It was great and horrible and hard. Um, but I didn't know what's going on with him yet. You know, at that time, I was just, I thought it was me. I thought, like, I didn't understand that he had sensory integration issues, that he had post-traumatic stress disorder, you know, that I was dealing with the behavioral manifestations of that. Um, and so I never would have thought that I would have written a book about it because I didn't know what was happening yet. Wow. Wow. Yeah. It just, you know, it was just one of those things. If you, if you went back and read the first book sort of analytically, I mean, I'm sure someone will do a dissertation about how, you know, they're a, a matched pair, but of course not, you know. Right, right. So the, the way we wrap up the podcast is to do our steal this um, um, trick, which is just, you know, what the, there's, I think T.S. Eliot said, amateur poets borrow, professional poets steal. Um, and so what is, you know, is there anything you've come across recently that you wanted to steal and make your own? I stole something just recently. Uh, I went, I heard this rabbi speak and she was talking about edges and, uh, you know, what it meant, you know, the Jewish people living on the edges of different societies and how that was a place of power that like, especially in uh, a city that is a walled fortress, that the edges are really a place of power. And, uh, and anyway, so I, I went and I took exactly what she said and I created a whole blog post around it, mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and talked about just the feeling like I was in this in-between place. Um, putting this book out, you know, like going from the private to the public sphere and how that, that, that could be a place of power for me and, uh, and didn't credit her nothing. Uh, and <laughs> yeah, and then of course I sent it right to her, you know, and I said, look, I stole your idea. <laughs> That's sneaky, sneaky, Jillian. <laughs> and, and she was just thrilled. I mean, in the same way that I would be thrilled if I wrote, I mean, I don't want someone to plagiarize me, but if I wrote something that someone then bounced off of and came up with something of their own, then, you know, I'd be thrilled. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's sort of what we do. That's the business we're in here. Yeah. For me, I was listening to Carl Nausgaard on a podcast of, of the four of the, you know, Michael Kraske's forum show. And, and there were, there were sort of all these questions about, you know, are you a narcissist and whatever? And anyway, and that kind of, I didn't care about, you know, what, whether he was a narcissist or not, but then uh, Michael Krasny asked him, you know, do you rewrite? And he said, oh no, <laughs> no, no, not at all. And I thought that, I want that hubris. I mean, I'm never going to not rewrite, but I want that kind of hubris of like, this is what came out of me. And like, here it is in six volumes world, you know. <laughs> so. I know. Do you think, you think that they would, the world would accept that from a woman ever in a million years though? I don't. I don't. You know, I kept, my father used to say. I think that there is an, there's a, there's a female equivalent of my struggle. Right. Well, there, there's definitely, it exists to be written, but, um, you know, my father used to quote Norman Mailer and, and I actually tried to find this quote, but, um, I, I can't find it yet. Uh, you know, I searched it on the internet, but he used to say that Norman Mailer said something like, you know, Oh, something about like the great American novel or no woman will write the great American novel until a call girl writes her memoirs. 
Really? I need that quote. I know. So I was like, I've got to find this. I'm like, that was my dad. So like, for all I know, he just made this up. Or like, maybe he saw Norman Mailer at a party in New York. And I don't know. I can't find it. I'll keep looking. I've got to find that and like have it, you know, inscribed on my, <laughs> my uh, whatever you call it, doorway. Jillian, can you just let everyone know where to find you um, so that, you know, this, this won't go public for a few weeks, but just to know where to find you and find your listings and because I know you'll be, you'll be around in public for a while. I will. I'll be around. I'm touring right now. I'm going to be Austin, San Francisco, Portland, Chicago, back to New York at the end of the month, and uh, and some in LA. And you can find me on JillianLauren.com. You can also look on my Facebook page. I list things pretty regularly on my Facebook page, but it's all up there on JillianLauren.com. And you can check out my blog too while you're there. Um, and my book's available everywhere. It's in stores. It's on Amazon. Amazon, it's, uh, you know, go buy it at your local independent store or order it. Yeah, and it is really wonderful. And it touches, we haven't even gotten to talk about all of the things it touches on, but it's it's a very moving book for, for parents, for human beings, for people dealing with special needs, for people dealing with how to create family and, you know, love. I mean, <laughs> anything you care about as a human being, this book will mean something to you. <laughs> Thank you so, so much for uh, for meeting with me in the midst of your whirlwind tour. And I'm really looking forward to talking with you on the 21st, May 21st in San Francisco. Yes, May 21st. I can't wait for our conversation. And it's such a pleasure to talk to you about writing. Yeah, likewise. Thank you so much, Jillian. <laughs> Bye. Bye, everyone.